What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, what's the story, Morning Glory? What's the word, Hummingbird? I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we have jazz hands. And today, We're doing you know, them. You know what? It totally does not translate to radio. But, but anyway. I, but I told them we were doing it. Yeah, we, and we were. Uh, actually, I wasn't, but you two were. Yeah, so, honesty in podcasting. That's true. So today we wanted to talk about the concept of big data or big data, which is not a gigantic character from Star Trek The Next Generation. Unfortunately. No, that would have been both interesting and terrifying, but uh, that is not the case. Actually, I guess you could still argue that big data is both interesting and, to some people, terrifying. Yeah. It's it's so. What is big data? I've got a couple of of official definitions, and then uh, Joe, I think you have your own definition. So let me let me go through these <laughs> quote unquote official definitions. These are from IBM, and IBM is one of those companies that has a lot invested in big data in general and big data management. 
And so uh, in a paper called Demystifying Big Data, uh, here's one of the definitions, which is big data is a phenomenon defined by the rapid acceleration and the expanding volume of high-velocity, complex, and diverse types of data. Big data is often defined along three dimensions, volume, velocity, and variety. And then the other definition is big data is a term that describes large volumes of high-velocity, complex, and variable data that require advanced techniques and technologies to enable the capture, storage, distribution, management, and analysis of the information. So, Joe, what's your what's your definition? That was a lot of words. Yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, well, it just seems to me, and I'm no expert here, but big. what's the difference between just a lot of data and then big data? That's a good question. Uh, uh, because we've had a lot of data before, but suddenly there's sort of this new paradigm where we have to think about, oh, it's big data. It's a separate thing. It's not just a matter of degrees. And I think it's the point at which our intuition kicks in and tells us something weird is going on. Right. There's like, so much here to handle that I can't even imagine handling it. Yeah. It, it's it's when you suddenly realize, oh, hold on to your butts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the phrase was actually entered into the Oxford English Dictionary just this quarter, like this month, as of June 2013. They entered it into their um, quarterly online update. And and there 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 is a definition that is very much like the one that Jonathan read off, but slightly more succinct. Um, well, it's the OED. And, <laughs> well, they they also include several several uh, examples of it of its use. Um, the original going back to 1980, when a social historian um, and by the name of C. Tilly uh, referenced it, but in terms of of meaning being obscured when you are in the presence of of an increasingly complex system. Of, of, of information. Right. Okay. Well, so it, it has something to do with it's hard for us to grasp intuitively. Right. And- well, well, yeah. It's kind of like if you want to boil it down to a cliche, it's the whole not being able to see the forest for the trees. Mm. Like you're able to see the, the, the stuff that's immediately around you, but when you're trying to get a bigger picture, your perspective is blocked by the fact that there's just so much there. Right. So that you can't get a good grasp on the big picture. So exactly how many trees are we talking about here? Well, let's, let's <laughs> boil that down. Let's boil that down to talking about how we measure data in the computer world. And for anyone who has any, uh, background in computers at all, this is probably going to seem super basic to you, but it's important to have the building blocks there for us to understand the enormity of big data, right? Yeah. If you go look on the internet, it seems like a lot of times people confuse terms like data and facts and information. Well, like they just use them interchangeably. Data and information are, you know, of course, that they are synonyms, but when we're talking about data in the terms of, in the of computer, computational, yeah. Yeah. Then, then we're talking about bytes, yeah. right? So a byte is eight bits, and uh, one byte can represent one character. So it, when I'm talking about character, I'm talking about like a letter or a number or a symbol. I'm not talking about Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. That's a totally different kind of character. So eight bits can be one character. So it takes about 10 or uh, bytes, so 80 bits total, 10 bytes to make up about you know one word or so. Uh, so th- that's your basic unit of data. So if we look at kilobyte, that's we we say it's a thousand bytes. Technically, it's one thousand twenty-four bytes. And oh yeah, because of the base two counting. Yeah, this this gets a little this gets a little uh, complex as we go higher up. So I will be rounding down to the the nearest uh, uh, thousand nice round million number. billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because otherwise. 
uh, will be spending the entire podcast just listening to me read out an incredibly long number. I'll give an example <laughs> of that when I get to it, but I'll skip over most of them. Anyway, so a kilobyte will rough, say is roughly a thousand bytes. So if you were to type out a page of text, that would be about two kilobytes of information. Now that's if you're just typing text, not like images or anything else, but that would be about two kilobytes. Uh, now, if you had a low-res photo, that's probably around 100 kilobytes, maybe fewer, depending upon the resolution. I mean, that, you know, some things that if you save it for the web, it can be between like 30 and 100 kilobytes or so. Uh, the next step up is megabytes. So uh, that's technically 1,048,576 bytes, but we usually just say 1 million. And that's the last I'm going to do of the specific numbers. <laughs> uh, so a high-res photo could be at least two megabytes. Five megabytes is enough to hold the complete works of Shakespeare. So Now, wait a minute. Would that be uh, plain text or formatted documents? It would be essentially plain text. Yeah. yeah plain text would be about five I megabytes so. would hold Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you wanted to hey, use there's the, a lot of indenting. If I you mean, wanted to on. use there the, is, the yeah. There's there's all these bears pursuing you in <laughs> Winter's Tale, so you gotta fill that out. Uh, the a CD-ROM. Do you guys remember those? I do. Like, they're still they still exist. I but, have one on my computer in front of us. Yeah, an <laughs> optical drive. Were they round? <clears throat> they were, uh, you know, all, along one side. But if you looked at them uh, in profile, they were flat. That's what you used to play Mist, right? <laughs> yes, it was in <laughs> fact. But a CD-ROM could hold between about 650 and 900 megabytes. And uh, we're talking about the 12-centimeter discs, not the 8-centimeter discs, because they had mini-discs as well. You know, it wasn't as popular here in the United States, but uh, in Asia they were very popular. Then you have gigabyte. That ends up being the uh, the billion mark of bytes. Again, I'm just simplifying here. About a, one gigabyte can hold a broadcast-quality movie. By the way, I remember when I had a computer that had a, I think, three gigabyte hard drive, and that was so huge. Yeah, I remember oh, when yeah. I got a 256 megabyte hard drive, and I thought <laughs> that there's no way anyone could fill up that much at space, and look at what I know. Uh, a 20 gigabyte drive could hold the high fidelity recordings of the entire works of Beethoven. A 50 gigabyte hard drive is equivalent to a floor of books in a typical library. Uh, the next step up is terabyte, which is uh, one trillion bytes. That two terabytes would be equivalent to an academic research library. And 10 terabytes would be equivalent to all of the printed collection at the United States Library of Congress. Just the printed materials. It's amazing how much cheaper the storage has become over the years. What does it cost to go buy like a one terabyte external hard drive. It all now. depends on where you go, but you're talking around a hundred couple hundred dollars at most for most places. And and the thing is that, you know, the the technology has improved over time and the manufacturing processes have improved over time, which has brought the price down over time. Uh, but we're not done yet. We got to go back up. So uh, if you if that was 1 trillion bytes. Let's say you want That's wanna, the consumer level. Let's Come say you on. Let's say you yeah. want a quadru well, the numbers we're going to be talking about are way bigger than even oh, this. Know. Well, they don't know. We haven't said it yet. So next is uh is one quadrillion bytes. That's a that's a petabyte, and uh, two petabytes would be all U.S. academic research libraries combined. Two hundred petabytes would be all printed material everywhere. Uh, if you went up to one quintillion bytes, I don't know how many zeros that is. It's a lot. Uh, <laughs> that's an exabyte. And five exabytes would be enough to contain all the words ever spoken by human beings. 
If you were to break down all the words we've ever spoken into bytes, it would fit within five exabytes. Did, did we say whose estimates these are? Oh, well, these are actually estimates that are up all over the place. Okay. They're, they're, you know, IBM actually cites these uh-huh. as their, their benchmarks as well. I believe you. I was just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the next two levels up, you want to go up. Uh, so we've done quintillion. So sextillion would be zettabyte and I guess septillion would be yottabyte. So, uh, anyway. No, is that yada or yakta? Yada. Okay. Not Yoda. Not Yoda, not Yakta, not Yakta. Yeah. Yada. Yeah. So, but, yeah. so anyway, yada, those, yada, yada. those are the scales. Exabyte, we get to the point where it's all the words we've ever spoken, right? So that gives you the idea of, of the basics of bytes and how much information is equivalent to, you know, various real world examples. So let's talk about the amount of information that we create on a daily basis. So for example, according to IBM, we create about 12 terabytes of tweets in one day. That's 12 trillion bytes of messages at 140 characters or fewer. Tweets alone, and, and Twitter isn't even by far the most popular social networking No, it is not, well, is not the most popular at all. And that, yet, that's not even rich text, is it? That's just plain text? It's plain text. It's short messaging service, really, is what yeah. it is. So, so remember, two terabytes is equivalent to a single academic research library. So you've got the equivalent of six research libraries academic research libraries just in tweets alone. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to be able to research your next uh, uh, thesis only using Twitter. <laughs> it's not necessarily useful data that's out there, but that's how much you know, well, once quantity you, when, is Once there. you put it together, lots of people are, are tracking trends and keywords and, and, you know, sure, yeah, all kinds of things. There are lots of useful uh, yeah. applications. Aren't they using Twitter to predict the stock market and earthquakes? And They're <laughs> using Twitter for all sorts of stuff, yeah. Uh, consumer behavior. Poli- Not that we're endorsing things. those ideas, by the way. That but anyway, probably doesn't work. going back to the kind of data that we actually are producing on a daily basis, back in 2012, when Facebook still had just under 1 billion registered users, they were collecting, according to Facebook, they did an earnings call where they said they were collecting about 500 terabytes per day from users. So that's all the stuff that everyone is doing on Facebook, whether they are posting a status update or liking a page or sharing a link. All of that was uh, folded into this number, but 500 terabytes every day. So uh, then you've got YouTube. You guys, of course, have heard the famous... Uh, stat. Now it is 100 hours of video that's uploaded every minute. Going up so users. fast at, uh, between the time we shot that video. And by the, the time we, yeah. well, but between the time we wrote it and the time we shot, or, well, well, yeah, by the time it. we shot it and the time it published. Exactly. Yeah. yeah it, it went from 72 to 100. I, technically it had been growing all that time, but Google the gave the official yeah. announcement. Yeah. So 100 hours of YouTube footage is uploaded every minute. So that means that uh, in a single day, you get about 144,000 hours of video on YouTube added every day. That's sick. It's, it's, it's a little, <laughs> pretty sick. it's a little stomach churning actually. Um, and so if you were to look at all the data that we are creating, and this is beyond social media, we're talking about, all the information being created, not just by human beings, but by things like sensors that are connected to computer systems and are sending that data in. So things like 
weather uh, sensors or traffic sensors, the cameras we've talked about in the past, all of this stuff combined generates about 2.5 quintillion bytes of data, also known as exabytes, every single day. Well, that makes me curious. Does more data come from human entry or from other machines? Right now, humans are actually generating most of that data. 85% of it, in fact, is coming from unstructured information, which includes things like email, video, blogs, uh, social media, call center conversations. All of this goes into that, that data. 85%. 85%. I bet that's going to change. Probably. If you remember our Internet of Things episode, we talked a lot about how we're going to be living in this world where our environments are going to be constantly collecting. Yeah, and, the more and, devices are collecting information about us and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll get to a point where we'll start to see that number probably, uh, fluctuate quite a bit. We'll see that percentage drop for human produced data versus, you know, automated sensors. So 2.5 quintillion bytes of data produced every day. That means every two days we produce as much information as all the words we've ever spoken. So that's kind of incredible. And also, according to IBM, uh, in the last two years, we have produced 90% of all the world's data, meaning that everything prior to those two years represents 10%. Of all the data ever, it's a it's a pretty crazy crazily curved graph. Uh, as of 2010, so so you know years ago at this point, uh, Eric Schmidt of Google said that we were creating as much info every two days as as we had from the dawn of humankind up through 2003. Yeah, yeah. So in 2011, one point we created 1.8 zettabytes of information globally uh, in that year, and that amount is expected to double every year. So. That means uh, 1.8 zettabytes, if you want to know, like, okay, well, what does that mean to me? Like, how, how can I conceptualize this amount of information? That is equivalent to 200 billion two-hour HD movies. And uh, if you wanted to watch those 200 billion HD movies and just sit down and have a marathon, it would take you 47 million years to do it. No bathroom breaks. <laughs> Because then you're adding more yeah, time. Yeah, that, that, those these these numbers don't even make any sense to me at, at that point. No, it's, it's, it's just you know, and that's and that's the that's the key, right? Th- that's why we call it big data because yeah. they are such huge numbers that when you think about, it, you're like, what? What can I even do with all this information? How can I make use of it? But that's exactly the thing, right? We're going to a point where it's not so much that you're going to do something with it. But the machines are going to do something with it. Right. And and there's some very creative processes that people have come up with that break this down into more manageable problems that machines can handle. Well, I shouldn't say that you're not going to use it for sure. I mean, this kind of thing is probably really useful to people who are involved in, say, marketing. Well, it's useful for marketing, but it's also uh, and we'll, like we'll do a election predictions. Yeah, we'll, like we'll do a full episode on some of the applications. Of oh, yeah, using that's big next data. time. Yeah, that'll be our next episode that we record. I'll stop this one. right there. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, there. Here's an example that all of us in this room could use uh, with big data. Now we would not be actually doing the analyzing ourselves, but we would benefit from the uh, the 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 actual work, and that would be traffic, real time traffic reports. So if you are using some sort of GPS that allows you to get incoming uh, traffic information that's being gathered by various means 
and there are different ways of doing it depending upon what system you're using, then you are essentially benefiting from the uh, from the analysis of big data. Because it's taking all this information about the actual environment around you that's gathered from multiple sources. And helping you route the uh, the most efficient way. Right. It does it dynamic routing, which is really a, a cool thing and, and an obvious benefit. But that's just one application. So how do you end up navigating this much information? Like what what's the... What's the magic key to it? And there are actually a couple different ways. I don't want to. I don't want to throw my co-hosts under the bus because I specifically looked this stuff up. And so when I asked the question, they're like, "I, I, uh, it's a lot. Throw a dart. I don't know." Um, so, let me guess. Let me guess. You use computers. That's good, Joe. Super Very computers, good. perhaps. You could use supercomputers. You could also use grid computing, which is where you end up using a lot of computers to work on a single problem. So you guys have probably heard the term parallel processing. Mm-hmm. Parallel, sure. parallel processing is is an idea where you are able to take certain kinds of computer problems, where you can divide up the problem into different. Uh, sections, maybe even subsections of data, and then assign each of those parts to a different processor. And this this could happen within a computer, or you could be talking about spreading it out right. to uh, lots of different computers. So if you have a computer that has multiple cores, for yeah. example, a multi-core processor, each core could be taking part of this problem and working on it separately. And really what you have is you have a you essentially have one unit acting as the director. And the director's job is to take the problem and to divide it up into manageable chunks and then to parcel that out to all the other elements of the system, whether it's other computers or other processors or other cores. Their job is to work on that particular part of the problem and then send the results back to the master. The master then takes all the results and has a collective result as uh, as the final product, and that's where you get the answer that you're looking for. Uh, it's called often this this approach is called a, a map reduce framework. You're mapping out the problem and then routing it out, and then you uh, reduce the problem that way. When all the uh, and, and when all the answers are sent back to you, you reduce all those answers into one answer. So that's the whole process for taking generally a huge problem and making it manageable. Now the key to all of this. And a lot of people and companies that specialize in big data will tell everyone this, is that you can't just do anything with this information. What you have to do is decide what is it that you want to do with the information. What specific thing are we looking for? Right. And then you build a system that lets you get Mm -hmm. that from, derive that from all the data you have. So it's not like you just look at this. You can't wing it. Yeah, you can't just look at this big ball of of zeros and ones and then just magically draw out the information you need. What you do, and or you just sit there and you look at it and say, you know, what can we learn from this? You, you have to look for a specific kind of pattern. Like if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, you're you're looking for something shiny, for example. Yeah, and and you know, if you, if you just go like, yeah, if if you just say, well, I'm looking for something kind of pointy and short, then that's not. Now, helpful. What, what is interesting is that when you get information on this scale, this huge amount of information, you can actually start to recognize patterns that otherwise would have been completely obscured. Uh, yeah, yeah, you would never have been able to. Again, it's the forest for the trees thing. You would never have been able to have seen the forest because you were right there in the middle of all those trees. So 
the same sort of thing. You'd be able to see these big patterns that happen. And that's where especially things like marketing ends up being a big deal because you can see things like tendencies for customers to behave in a certain way. And if you want them to behave a particular way, you can start to focus on things that kind of guide them in that direction. But I've even seen bizarre representations, a thing online that was the strange cornucopia shape and it was just labeled like the geometry of big data. Yeah, it's it's a little like, it, again, when we're talking about something so huge that it's difficult for us to get a, a mental grasp on it, trying to find a, a representation of that that makes sense to us is something of a, an uphill battle. It, it you know, it's a lot of people have tried, but it's really difficult to make this and make it understandable in a way that doesn't just blow out the scale immediately where, you know, you have the manageable amount of data and then the the spike just goes all the way up through the top of the graph and you can't see the you top just of go, it. Yep, that's that's big. Yeah. So it's really big. Other ways to handle all that data. There's also uh, uh, the approach of doing just real time analytics and streaming of data. In this case, this would be kind of like the traffic example I gave earlier. So with traffic, you have all these sensors gathering data and then you have uh, that uh, analysis and streaming of the data happening immediately. And then you get the, the results. Uh, in this case, you don't have to worry so much about storing lots of data because it doesn't really matter if there was a slow spot on the highway two hours ago. What matters is what's going on right now. So you don't have to worry about building these huge data centers to store all that information. You just have to build a system that's large enough to handle incoming information and give outgoing information. So you have to have a good input-output basis. Uh, that's what's important in those types of systems. Now, on the other types of systems where you are collecting and analyzing enormous amounts of information, you have to have a place for that information to live. And that's where storage comes into play. And that's where we see these enormous data centers, things that buildings that are specifically made to house data servers. So it's if you were to walk into one of these places, it essentially would look like a huge warehouse or maybe even like an airline hangar. I mean, these buildings can be enormous and they're filled with shelves of servers. They usually have massive uh, HVAC systems. Yeah, Sometimes but they're cold inside, I suppose. They, ideally, they are because, of course, the, the warmer things get, the more poorly technology can perform to an extent. You don't want to super cool everything because then it can have its own problems. But you do want it to maintain a, a decent operable temperature. So you might have even a water cooling system and not just air cooling. They pro- they have to have sort of a distributed redundancy too, don't yes. they? Like Because if one machine dies and with that many machines, you know just every so often several machines are going to die. You, you can't lose something. Right. So for example, Google, which is it's a great example because Google has lots of data centers. Uh, and that Google uses, famously, they use fairly inexpensive servers in the grand scheme of things. They're not buying the top of the line, fresh off the, the manufacturing plant servers. They want things that are uh, right, plentiful and easy to replace. Yeah, they're going for efficiency, not um, high power. Yeah, they don't, they don't need each server to be able to handle the workload of three other servers. They'd want things that are going to be reliable, and if it does break down, make it easy to switch it out with something else. But on their system, they do have lots of redundancy. And it's this idea that, you know, stuff breaks. 
Machines go down. Power goes out. With that many, it's just statistically guaranteed. Yeah, exactly. You know it's going to happen. So the way you protect against it is that you build extra – you have extra machines involved there so that some of them have a little bit of information from – like if you have servers A through Z, server D might have a little bit of information from server A. And then maybe even server you know J has a little bit from server A. So it's the idea is that you've spread it out so that if any one server goes down, you still have access to that information so that you, there's no interruption in service. Uh, now, there are cases of servers that have gone down where that was the only really source of that information, and that has been a spectacular failure. <gasps> you mean my data's not safe? Well, it, I'm not going to say that, Joe. Let's not, let's not spread fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That's not what this podcast is about. No, uh, it's not that. It's just that there have been times in the past where it became clear, like, this is the way to go. The redundancy way is the way to go. And I would, oh, yeah. I would say that, you know, I can't imagine any operation of the size that would involve big data would not also have redundancy plans there. Now, of course, that does mean that you have to have even more machines than what you would require at minimum. And that requirement is constantly going up because we're generating more and more data every day. So then the question becomes data management. You know, how long do you keep that information? Uh, at what point do you, you know, do you ever wipe a, a, a drive so that you can you know, fill it up again, or and it all depends on what your your service is and what the purpose of it is. But uh, yeah, I mean that's it's it's kind of crazy, like how much how much infrastructure needs to exist just so that these zeros and ones have a home. Well, so if we extrapolate that outward, mm-hmm. that leads me to what seems like kind of a weird philosophical question. Almost, uh, is there a limit to the kind of data we can process? And ultimately, if you say no, there's no real physical limit. There's no necessary limit. Is it possible to represent the entire universe, all of reality, as data? Or is there something about the universe that can't ever be reduced to information? I am going to tackle your question in multiple parts. <laughs> Part the first. Uh, is there a limit? I, I hesitate to ever say that there is a limit in the sense that there, there's always more uh, innovation that allows us to do bigger and better things. But I will say there is a limit to the amount of energy that is in the universe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking about like, well, there are, say, physical constants and there's like the speed of light and stuff well, like yeah, that. yeah, but we're talking will about things like, like that ever represent a barrier well, I don't think we found any kind of physical law that states that once you get to this amount of data, there's no amount of parsing that you can do to make it useful. I don't think – well, certainly we haven't encountered that yet. Uh, I don't think it's – I don't think that's possible simply because as we get more and more data, we're also building more and more powerful machines that can handle larger amounts of data. And if we're able to break down those problems into smaller bits anyway – then really the limitation we're, the limiting factor we're looking at here is energy not computing power so you although, know, although at the current moment some computer scientists are concerned about the amount of data that we're crunching versus uh, they they're saying that the amount of data that we're creating is um fast outstripping uh, moore's law in terms of how fast processors are going sure uh, I, there will there will be bottlenecks i mean there will yeah. obviously be bottlenecks but if you're looking at a truly philosophical idealistic approach you're essentially saying that Eventually, you could 
create more data than you could possibly process <laughs> only because you don't have enough. There's not enough energy in the universe to run all the processors you, you would need yeah. to handle that much data. There's that or like I had the crazy absurd idea. I know this is silly, but like it, you've got so much data that the server farm is so big that the pieces of information are too far apart to communicate with each other efficiently, like physically. I can see what you're saying. So you're saying like, like, ser- like if we had, if we had server a server farm on Mars from another, and yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. If we had planetary I mean, size, it all depends on, on, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. So let's say that, let's say that we're filling up space with servers. This again is a very philosophical kind of, you know, thought experiment approach, but let's say we're filling 20 up 20 years out. 20 to 50, 20 to 50 years out where he filled up space with, with, uh, with computer servers and you were just packing space with these servers so that you could process more and more data. Easy you to could, keep them cool. You yeah. could get to, yeah. All right. Enough with the comedy. I'm trying to make a point here. You can, you could get to a point in that, in that theoretically where you've got a server that literally is light years away. It could be physically next to billions of other servers, but it's, Light years away from where, mm-hmm. yeah. Then you're talking about you're limited by the speed of communication. Not it's again not really the the processing limitation. It's the speed of light that's mm-hmm. limiting you. But it, but you'd be able to do it. It would just take time. Um, your other question: Could all of the universe, uh, all of reality itself, be broken down into data? Uh, I don't know because. First of all, we're only able to observe part of the universe, and we don't know how much of the rest of it there is. Uh, but assuming that we could, that would mean that – all right, let's 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 assume that it is possible to break yeah. down all of reality into zeros and ones. Sure, sure. In, the, in that 20 to 50 years, we have figured out what dark matter is, and we have um, observed all of it. Right. We've got, we've, got a, we've got it down. Our finger is on the pulse of the universe, and we know what makes it tick. And then we can actually create – a simulation of that because we know that we can break down the universe itself into what, you know, into data, you know, make that transition. That would then raise the argument of, well, if we could do that, then theoretically we could create a simulation of our universe on a smaller scale digitally and then be able to to run interesting numbers on, you know, what would have happened if we had tweaked this protein in this protozoa or what would have happened if there had been more uh, antimatter particles rather than matter particles or what would have happened if, yeah, if I mean that, that age old question of if someone had gone back and killed Hitler. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To the point where you Mm -hmm. could actually, you know, theoretically create (laughs) life, virtual life, which then raises the question, wait, if that is possible, if all of that is possible for us to be able to make this, to break, down the universe into a simulation and make it ourselves surely, and be able to watch it. Surely that, we will. That means, yes, we will one day do that because we're people and we're, we're curious, curious and we want to do that. Which, which means, means we're that, living in a simulation Which right means, now. Exactly. by all probability. Yeah, that, that means that, that the highest likelihood is that we are, in fact, living in a computer simulation right now because if it's possible, then we will do it. And if we will do it, then we probably already have done it. And that we, the people who are living in this reality right now, are in fact living through a computer simulation, which could be a computer simulation, which could be a computer simulation. <laughs> yeah, that's what what I started thinking about when we really got into the absurdities here is this kind of snake eating its own tail sort of thing. Like, well, imagine you could represent the entire universe somehow as data. That universe representation would have to include all of the simulations and data within the universe. Um, well, if so, you were creating a simulation of the universe, you could be selective in what you were including and what you weren't including. But if you were trying to build a 
an actual like it's essentially like making a map to scale <laughs> in a one to one scale. Yeah. Like here's my map of Atlanta at one to one scale. It's the size of Atlanta. Not very <laughs> useful. Um but anyway, this is this is a philosophical argument that's been made before about whether or not mm-hmm. we're in a computer simulation, which really was more about the idea that we probably will never get there in the sense that uh you know it wasn't it wasn't that we definitely are living in a computer simulation but rather that humankind would very likely end its own existence before reaching a point where we were capable of doing such a thing. And you're talking uh, about the point where you're actually harnessing the power of stars themselves in order to, to generate drive the your, computer power you right. need. Well, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. And I'm not so much skeptical about that as mm-hmm. I am about a uh, housing consciousness inside a, you know, a computer processor. But. Right. Well, and, and again, we, this is kind of getting way off track, but, it, but, but there's the idea that if you were able to create a simulation of a human brain, there's no way of predicting whether or not it would develop its own consciousness. One of our faves. Yeah. We don't know because we haven't been able to build a, a human brain on a real time, uh, scale, like a, a one to one scale without, you know, we, we've built very small models that could run in very slow amount of time. But well, not, and and, and but, again, I mean, much like the universe, we really don't know what's going on inside the human brain. There's yeah. so much of it that we don't understand. Well, simulating so. the brain—that's big data mm-hmm. too. It is big data. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, you know, that I guess that kind of wraps up this whole overview of what big data is and why it's. And I know I keep saying big data and switching to big data, but that's what I do every day. <laughs> but but yeah, this is big business is what it really boils down to because. Companies are are trying to harness all this information to make it meaningful in some way. If if it weren't possible to do that, then we'd probably see a lot of these services die off pretty quickly because there just wouldn't be the support there to financially to have yeah. them continue. Oh, that's how they they make money by serving advertising, right? Right. There's the advertising, and then there's you know there's some companies that are not revenue supported, but they are supported by investors, mm-hmm. and a lot of these these investors are saying, "Look, I know that right now there's no direct way that this service is making money, but the data it generates is intrinsically valuable, and as soon as we figure out a way of leveraging that data, we make all of our investments back." So I mean, that, you know, it's a it's a money game too. Step four, profit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up this conversation about big data and underpants gnomes. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Forward Thinking, I recommend you get in touch with us. Send us an email. That's fwthinking at discovery.com or go to fwthinking.com. Check out our blogs. Check out our podcasts. Check out the social media. Check out all of the links we have there. We've got some really cool content that we want to share with you guys, and we want you to be part of the conversation. So come on and join us, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.
Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love & Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love & Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.